0: Well, good evening. Uh, My name is Preston. For those of you who don't know me, I'm an intern at St. Peter's Fireside. And so tonight, going into Lent, we are going to do our best to hear from Hosea the prophet. So pray with me and then we'll get going. God, give us ears to hear your word afresh tonight. Give us eyes to see the realities of the world around us as you see them, not as we see them. Speak your truth and love to the bedrock of our souls. In the powerful name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So prophets, if, you, if you've ever known one, are incredibly unpopular people. This is because it has, been, it has been said the prophet goes out and shouts from the housetops what other people will only whisper in closets. A prophet's eyes see in vivid 3D color what most of us only see in a gray haze, or usually choose to ignore altogether. Take a modern-day prophet, for example, Martin Luther King Jr. He shouted from the housetops the dark truths about racism, segregation, and income inequality about American society that no one in power wanted to hear about, or even recognize as a problem. He was a prophet because he revealed the dark truths about life. Truths that affected how people worked, how they lived, how they socialized, how they ate, even how they rode the bus. He made people face the very uncomfortable reality of their situation and called them to repent of their sinful ways. Prophets make us very uncomfortable. That's why we don't like them. Israel's ancient prophets were the same way. They were equally disliked. And for the same reason, going out and shouting about Israel's sins and their apostasy. Sins, again, most people pretended weren't even going on. And, and, and they were calling them to repent. This is exactly what Hosea the prophet was called to do. So we're going to hear a little bit of his story tonight, and see the two-part call of his prophecy. Judgment on the one hand, and mercy on the other. In Hosea chapter 1, we have both. Verses 2 to 9 describe Hosea's story and tell how God uh, announced judgment on his people. And then the other side, mercy, comes right afterwards. In verses 10 to the end, we hear about God's mercy coming on the people. So, so the judgment, why did God judge Israel? How did he pronounce it? Why does it matter in the mercy? Why did God pronounce mercy and why does it matter? We have to hold this central paradox together to hear Hosea rightly. Both are there, and both are true. So judgment and mercy are both true of God's character. We see it here. And they together call us towards repentance. So first, the judgment. Why does God judge his people? Well, we have to know a little bit about Hosea's day to answer this question. Hosea lived during the reign of Jeroboam, the second king of Israel. He was the last stable king of of Israel before they were sacked by Assyria. (laughs) But when Jeroboam ruled, the mighty kingdom of Assyria wasn't so mighty, actually. Their armies were waging war on many fronts, um, and, and in this period, Israel wasn't in their sights. Left alone, Israel grew stable. They grew affluent. And most concerning to Hosea, they grew apostate. As they had done before, the Israelites abandoned abandoned worshipping their god, Yahweh, and instead worshipped other gods, namely Baal. Who is this god, Baal? Well, Baal was the god of fertility in the ancient Near East. The Canaanites believed Baal controlled the rainfall, productivity of the land, as well as the fertility of humans. The Canaanites worshipped Baal as the source of food, as the source of lineage, as the source of wealth and prosperity. He was really the god of the good life. Baal worshippers gave themselves over to ritual prostitution at shrines in order to coerce Baal to bless them and their land with fertility. I realize it's challenging to situate something like Baal worship in today's culture. What would this be like today? It doesn't really fit with us, uh, but I, I think Daryl Johnson, a local preacher and faithful exo- expositor, helps us bring this into today, and he does a great job, so this is what he writes about ball worship. I like to refer to Baal as the God of the way things are, versus Yahweh as the God of the way things were supposed to be and one day will be. Furthermore, ball worshipers base their ethics and their worldview on this is the way I am versus Yahweh worshipers who base their ethics and worldview on this is the way we were supposed to be and one day will be. Let me tell you, there's a big difference between these two. So let's try to draw it out out a little bit more. What does the God of the way things are do? The God of the way things are forms in us hard, bitter hearts. The God of the way things were supposed to be and one day will be forms in us soft, expectant hearts. The God of the way things are dulls us teaches us to accept the brokenness of our society. The God of the way things were supposed to be and one day will be forms, forces us to insist that however bad things are, however bleak they seem, they will not always be this way. The thousands of ministers and church leaders in the 50s and 60s who accepted segregation as part of American life, they were wooed by the God of the way things are. The one who spoke against segregation and those who stood with him, they were faithful to the God of the way things were supposed to be and one day will be. Worshiping the God of the way things are is accepting despair in dark times. It's losing a sense of mission and purpose in comfortable times. Worshiping the God of the way things were supposed to be and one day will be means maintaining a yearning, a thirst for God to return things to rights, no matter how bleak the circumstance. Worshiping this God means we refuse to be comfortable with this world and we witness to the one true God, who is on a mission to set things right. But in Hosea's day, in a time of stability and affluence, which is the most tempting time to do this, by the way. God's people in Israel were lulled into this complacency. They did forsake the God of the way things are supposed to be and one day will be, named Yahweh, and they turned to the God of the way things are. This is a tragic trap for the people of God, then and now, individually and as a church. We fall into it all the time. You see, we know we're worshiping the God of the way things are when our hopes lie in a political party to change our city instead of the gospel. We know we're worshiping the God of the way things are when we numb our pains and distract our disappointments with whatever it is, Netflix, the news, instead of taking the difficult road to healing through Christ who knows our deep suffering and knows how to heal it. We're worshiping the God of the way things are when we believe all the sum of our negative self-talk instead of believing that we're God's children, chosen and deeply loved. This is why God judges Israel. Their new God was destroying them. But how does God pronounce judgment? Well, Scripture often describes this relationship between God and His people, this covenant relationship, as a marriage. The metaphor is inescapable in Hosea. In verse 2, God announces the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And henceforth, the entire prophecy is a gut wrenching accusation of adultery. God's judgment in Hosea must be understood within this marriage metaphor. The false lover, Baal, to whom Israel has sold herself, ravages the nation with ferocity and indifference. Yahweh is angry. His heart breaks. His lover, his people, Israel, have left him and are selling herself to a vile, false, abusive suitor. The image is very uncomfortable and for good reason. God shows the people their infidelity and brokenness through the marriage of his prophet, Hosea, particularly through the marriage bed of his prophet, Hosea. Hosea's marriage to Gomer, the prostitute, is a symbolic, prophetic action that reflects God's broken marriage with Israel. It's powerful because it is real. Yahweh's covenantal relationship to Israel is broken through their ball worship. Hosea's covenantal marriage to Gomer is broken through adultery. See, God not only shows Hosea's signs, he not only opens his eyes, to see Israel's unfaithfulness and their age of affluence and complacency, but he also calls Hosea to become this very sign of God's word in a deeply intimate way through his very marriage. This is worth us reflecting on as well. We're called to be prophets too, to be living signs of God's love and truth. As Jesus says in Matthew 5, to let our lights shine before men, so that they may see our good works and praise our Father in heaven. We must pay attention and look out for the times that you and I are called to be a prophet, to be a sign that witnesses to God's kingdom over this world. So, God does pronounce judgment on adulterous Israel through the marriage of Hosea and specifically through the children that Gomer bears. We heard about the children's names and they clarify what the judgment d- prescribes. The firstborn is named <clears throat> Jezreel, which means God sows, or scatters. The people, Israel, will be scattered. The second child is named Lo-Rumah, meaning no mercy. God announces, I will no longer have mercy on my people. And The third child is named Lo-Ami, meaning not my people. This is the most direct and potent announcement of judgment of the three because it reverses the language of God's covenant with his people in Exodus 6. He says, I will be your people and you will, be my, you will be my people and I will be your God. And now instead he reverses it and declares, you are not my people and I am not your God. God gives his people then and now freedom to remain faithful to the relationship or to follow other gods, the gods of the way things are. And because he is a God of steadfast love, committed to redeeming his creation to how it was supposed to be, he will establish justice. For Israel, this meant eventual exile from their beloved homeland. It meant losing their temple, everything that they knew and were familiar to, to know as home. Yet God's justice is always rooted in an impulse to redeem. It is always a response to evil, to brokenness, to wickedness. It's a movement from the true God of life to reveal the actual nature of sin and its destructive ends and to awaken humanity to its rebellion, to show us what's going on in order to call us back to a right relationship. God's justice is God being faithful to his promises to redeem. So why does God have mercy then? Well, Hosea insists on this redemptive understanding of judgment through the very structure and how he words chapter 1. Following the bleak pronouncement of judgment with Hosea's children, Yahweh then pronounces this, this covenant still valid. Mercy will be given to Israel and her descendants. It's confusing. We have judgment and then immediately we have mercy. We hear that her children will still be vast and innumerable, They shall be like the sand of the sea. The covenant will be restored, and it's even made more explicit. In the place where Israel is called, not my people, now they will be called children of the living God. This is the only place in the whole Bible, actually, that exact phrase is used. It's important because they're not children of harlotry or of apostasy like Hosea's children. They're not children of the false, not-living, destructive balls. That's not how God sees them. But he sees them as his own, even in their times of unfaithfulness. Indeed, we hear that God's people, they will receive mercy, despite their current wickedness. So Hosea the prophet announces judgment on the one hand, because God is fiercely committed to establishing justice. And on the other, Hosea announces mercy, because God is forever faithful to his covenant promises to his people. Judgment comes because God's people have forsaken him. Things are not as they are meant to be. But mercy also comes because God, is a faithful, because God is faithful and continues to shape and mold his people into his glorious image. In this story of God's people, which is also our story, God shifted the course of history ...towards the way things will one day be. By becoming himself... ...by becoming himself to this earth he created. To extend mercy and to adopt all as his children who call upon him. In Jesus Christ, God became the prophet himself. And articulated the call of all the prophets in his simplest sermon. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Tonight, we come together at the beginning of Lent to hear this call once again, to repent. Because the gods you and I worship, the gods of the here and now, the way things are, they're false, they're empty, and they are an affront to the one true God. Repent, because worshiping these false gods blinds us, and those who trust us, from God's truth, beauty, and righteousness. Repent, because worshiping these false gods will rightly bring down God's justice. If we are to be signs that point to the true God, we must pray together and ask Him to reveal to us the gods of the way things are. Some will be obvious to us, but many will not be obvious. They're not always easy to see. And this is why we set aside 40 whole days for Lent, from now until Easter, to resensitize our spiritual senses to the world around us, to create time and space and silence for God to speak. When God does reveal to us the ugliness of our false worship, which He will if we continue to, to ask him, and if we continue to listen, that's when we're called to repent. Yet, however painful repentance is, and it is It is painful. Remaining in hopelessness is worse. Because although death to sin is just that, a death, sharing in the resurrection life of Jesus is also that, new life. And when our spiritual senses are awakened and we attune to the reality of the living God, it's like we see the whole world afresh. John Wesley, an Anglican priest in the 18th century and... Founder of Methodism. He described the experience of the new birth. Of encountering God for the first time. This God of the way things were meant to be. And one day will be. And beautiful language that, that I think helps us understand this journey of repentance. And experience of God's mercy and grace. So this is how he describes this, this reinvigorating of our spiritual senses. And, and seeing God afresh. The relationship is like this. God is continually breathing upon the soul, and the soul is breathing unto God. Grace is descending into the heart, prayer and praise ascending to heaven. And by this intercourse between God and man, this fellowship with the Father and the Son, the life of of God in the soul is sustained, and the child of God grows up till he comes to the full measure of the stature of Christ. To the one who has ears to hear, this God who continually breathes grace upon your soul, who sees you as you were created to be and one day will be when he finishes transforming you into his glorious likeness, he longs for your prayers and praise to rise back to him. He's calling out. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And believe the gospel. He is a jealous lover. And he will not give up calling you back to him. This is the word of the Lord.